Do you dread tax time because you haven't saved enough for taxes? Are you totally confused and lost about your business finances? Do you worry that you'll never be able to retire or save for your kid's college education? If you bury your head in the sand because you think you'll never be a money person, I want to let you in on a huge secret. All you need to manage your private practice finances are a simple series of skills that you can learn. After all, you already did the hard work of graduating from college, becoming a therapist, and starting your private practice. Hi, I'm Lindsay Bonham. I'm a therapist turned money coach and the creator of Money Skills for Therapists. I've helped hundreds of therapists just like you develop peace of mind about their money. I invite you to watch my free masterclass where I teach my four-step framework to get your business finances totally in order. In the masterclass, I cover the three biggest mistakes that therapists make that keep them from getting clarity on their private practice finances, the secret that most accountants don't want you to know, and why working with your mindset and emotions is essential to changing your patterns with money. This masterclass is for therapists and health practitioners who are running or about to start a private practice. It is the first step in learning about my signature course, Money Skills for Therapists. Register today with the link in the show notes to take the first step to go from money confusion, anxiety, and shame to feeling clear and empowered about your money. I look forward to supporting you. what is my fee and what's actually sustainable. And so I use that kind of algorithm or whatever you want to call it to realize, okay, I have to charge what to me seems like an uncomfortable amount in order to not burn out and still make enough to pay off my loans little by little. Welcome to the Money Skills for Therapists podcast, where we answer this question. How can therapists and health practitioners go from money shame and confusion to feeling calm and confident about their finances and get money really working for them in both their private practice and their lives? I'm your host, Lindsay Bonham, therapist turned money coach and creator of the course Money Skills for Therapists. So on today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Erin Elmore. Erin is a psychologist turned educational coach, and we dig today into her experiences basically moving in and out of private practice. In her practice, she worked with children and families and adolescents, so we dig in today about setting fees for specific niches and really that value of recognizing the specific things that you do because of your specialty that are valuable to your clients. We talk about fees as boundaries with clients, and she shares about her experience with paying off six-figure student debt in four years, which is incredible. So if you're looking for some tips on how to structure your practice to really serve you and also serve the clients that you're serving and some inspiration and tips on paying off student debt, this is definitely the episode for you. So Erin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So Erin, before we kind of get into some of the stuff we wanted to dig into today, I would love for you to share with people listening a little bit about your kind of journey or trajectory as a private practice therapist, because I think it's it's maybe a little bit different than some people listening in that you're out of private practice right now, maybe for now, maybe forever. So let's let's talk about just briefly kind of your journey through private practice. Yes, definitely. So 
when I first got licensed, I worked at a group practice for a year to see if I liked that setting and kind of learn the ropes. And then I decided to go out on my own. So I did have my own private practice for about three years. And then more recently I have closed my private practice and moved into working for this company called triad. They're really like becoming the leading provider of education and career resources for behavioral and mental health. So they provide resources for social work, MFT, psychologist, counseling. And so as a psychologist, I do licensing exam coaching for the national EPPP exam. And also I'm in California. So I provide coaching for the state licensing exam in California. So technically my role is educational consultant right now, but yeah, there's other little things I do as well, but most of it is coaching. So that's, yes. that's where I find myself now. Yeah. Right. So you're, you're a psychologist. You kind of did private practice for three years and right now you've stepped into basically like educational coaching. Exactly. Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. Okay. So tell me about the work that you were doing when you were in private practice. What was your niche? Yeah. So my specialty all through grad school and in, in private practice is working with families, kids, teens, and families. So all the way up till probably age like 25. So I did a lot of individual work, but also a lot of co-parent sessions and family sessions and parent-child sessions. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Which is like a very specific niche in terms of like all those different configurations. Yes. It's almost like four separate (laughs) (laughs) specialties in one. Yes. 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 So I'm wondering for you then being that as it was, where you have all these like different types of sessions that you're doing with your clients, how did that affect money in your practice? Like for instance, like how did you think about charging for those, that different type of work that you were doing all within your one practice? Yeah. Really interesting question. So, I mean, coming out of my training, everything was very by the book. And so I assumed, okay, 45 minute sessions, one fee, that's just how it's going to be. Right. But the child family world has so many unique needs and timeframes that I realized that it made more sense to be a bit more individualized. So one thing I would do is if I had a family session, I would book an hour and a half and I would charge kind of a prorated rate for that time. So those sessions would actually be more expensive, but it just felt right because I always felt like I was rushing if it was 45 minutes to an hour for those sessions. And you're working so much harder when the more people there are in the room. So families totally understood that and we're fine with that. Or I often checked in with parents by phone. There's always extra phone calls and extra check-ins that you do as a child therapist. And so I started charging just per 15 minutes for those types of calls. So if it's just a quick check-in, no worries. But you know, if I'm spending 30 minutes here or there, 10 minutes here or there, it adds up. And so I ended up charging for those extra supplemental times. I knew some child therapists that would charge... Like if they visited the school, they would charge a transportation fee. Some would charge more for certain evening times that were more desirable and charge less for other session times. Like premium spots. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I didn't end up doing that, but there's just so many different ways. I think you can individualize the fee structure that we don't hear about often in grad school. Absolutely. Yeah. And something I really appreciate about that. And I'm curious if that was always kind of if that came naturally to you or not, I'm going to ask you that in a minute, but I know so many people listening struggle with that where it's like, we're almost like, so in our niche that we don't realize that there's things that are special about it. And there's things that we're doing that are specialized and exceptional and are valuable to our clients, right. Beyond just sitting together in that room. And what I'm hearing is you really built a practice that recognized all those different pieces of work that you are doing, right. Of using your clinical skills that went beyond just sitting in that room. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. And I, I will say I didn't have that idea on my own. <laughs> so I learned <laughs> that from consulting with other child therapists yes. and actually even more seasoned therapists who maybe worked with adults, but they had been in the field for a long time in private practice. And it didn't come natural to assert my fee or these unusual structures. So, but I thought it out ahead of time. So by the time I had my first client, I was like, Hey, this is just how I do it. But it felt very unnatural. I had to work up the courage to say, yeah, I'm going to charge you. If you call me after hours, because your kid is having trouble and we have a therapy session. Right. And so it took I'd say it probably took a good year before I felt fine doing that, but I'm really glad that I did because our time is valuable, you know? Well, and I'm curious, what do you think the impact that that had on those clinical relationships? How did that impact your relationships with those clients or families? I was surprised that it was harder for me than it was for them. Cause I think everybody, <laughs> everyone was like, okay, cool. Yeah, that's fine. And I think it did sort of set the bar for certain, not every family, but some families who struggle with boundaries or need more handholding. It really sort of was a buffer naturally for me that, you know, they would think twice before calling, like, do I really need to call Dr. Elmore or can we figure this out on our own? And so it sort of empowered them to to practice the skills we've been working on and not just use me as like an easy coping skill because they would have to pay for a little bit of that time. And, you know, it's up to you. Sometimes you can waive it. Sometimes you can. Yeah. You get to make the rules. You get to make the rules, but I did find it helpful to have that policy to fall back on with certain families. And I think they may have appreciated it too, because it gave them a chance to, again, practice what they're learning on their own first. Yeah. I mean, you're setting clear professional boundaries. There you go. That's something that really strikes me. And and something that I notice is, you know, sometimes as therapists and other types of health practitioners as well, and coaches, like we're doing it because we care. And it's easy to think that we're doing somebody a favor by being on the phone with them for half an hour at the end of the day, even though we're tired and we want to go home, you know, or by doing a, a visit somewhere and it takes a lot of your time, but you don't charge for it because you're like, wow, but this isn't a therapy session, right? It's so easy to justify not enforcing boundaries and not charging fees around those things. But what I'm hearing is like, for some families, those clear boundaries were absolutely essential because mm-hmm. there was boundary pushing, you know, yes. or there could have been a tendency to lean on you heavily rather than actually owning their skills and practicing those skills. Exactly. But I think with all clients, there's truth to that, right? And as you say, we get to be flexible. We get to choose like, you know what? I'm, I'm waving our phone call this time. This time it's fine, but exactly. you're making that active choice and they know that they're accessing you in a professional manner. Exactly. Right. Yes. You're not, you're not a friend who's available for a little phone call because they're having a moment of crisis. Right. Right. And I think people know they can feel if you're in it for the money or if you're in it to help them. And yes. so at least my clients didn't have a problem with that because they knew, I mean, it was hard for me to do that. So they knew <laughs> that I really wanted to just help them. Yes. It never became a problem, at least as far as no one brought it up or, you know, pushed back on it, which was really nice. And I, I kind of expected somebody to, at some point, but nobody yeah. did. I think people you know, they know that you're a professional and they want to pay for your services. Mm -hmm. I think that's okay. I think it's okay for us to say, well, here's my fee then. And I think that's so often the truth that it's harder for us than it is for them. Yeah. You know, we, we make up stories sometimes about our clients and their resilience or their financial situations, you know, or their ability to hear no, or to receive a boundary. Like we can make up all these stories, you know, maybe based on our own families of origin or our own, you know, stuff you know, for lack of a better term, but so often, like you said, they make no deal of it at all. It's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> now they know yes. the boundaries there. Now they yeah. know. 
And I will say the one area I had, I struggled with, or would go back and do different is fee reductions. So I had several families that were like, Hey, we want to get our kid involved in jujitsu and soccer and et cetera. Like, can we do a reduced fee? Or some of them were more serious, like, you know, that that somebody lost their job and needed a reprieve. And so that was hard for me because I was always very agreeable, but it's so much harder to get back to your normal fee when you have given a discount, sometimes it's very legitimate and I had no problem doing it. And sometimes in the course of a few weeks later, the child would tell me like, Oh, we just bought all oh, new bedroom furniture for me. And we're going to <laughs> Disneyland. And I'm just sitting there thinking like, and you're not paying me. Like, I know. See what's going I know. On. So then, so that was hard. And I think that was, that was probably where I was the most awkward is asserting the follow-up conversation of, Hey, you know, we let's revisit this fee reduction. I, I hear this, this, and this, you know, can we go back to the regular? And I think that was always the hardest part because you want to be considerate of what people are going through, but you know, you also need to, be yes, paid, you do. So. Yeah. And I think that yeah. resentment, whether we like it or not does come into the clinical relationship at some level, right? Like if we hear that, I remember a client who I worked with slidey scale, who I loved working with. She was a long-standing client, but she went to Iceland twice in like a year. And oh, I was man. like, man, I want to go to Iceland. <laughs> like having that, that little part of me, like that little, like, what? That's not fair. You're paying me like $60 less than my fee and you're going to Iceland twice. Yes. Right. And like that does impact our work on some level. It doesn't mean that we give bad service or that it, we're cold to them or something like that, but it's not a great thing to have in the relationship at all. Right. Like we should right. also feel right. respected and like, we are getting the compensation that we need to be well as much as somebody is able. And I think it helps people appreciate their sessions too, and know when they're ready to graduate. Cause if they're just getting it for almost free, they'll just come forever. And then it's really awkward to say, okay, I think you're ready to graduate (laughs) because you've become a resource in their life. So yeah, I think there is that balance of, you know, there, there's a reason that we have a fee and it really does help keep, like you said, the professional boundaries around everything. And something I would notice sometimes when I'd raise my fee is I never had a client quit because I was raising my fee. Like I've, you know, the fear is that your client is going to be like, you're greedy. How dare you? I'm never coming back here. I've never had that happen. Not even a version of that. Same. But what I have had yeah. is people who already, I was starting to feel like, do they still need to be here? And I would raise uh-huh. my fee and two or three sessions later, they're like, I think I'm good. Right. Like it just gives them that uh-huh. little nudge for them to also realize that like, yeah, as you say, maybe I've become a resource in their life, but do they really want to pay me my full fee anymore? Exactly. Yes. It it, it is a sort of reset or reevaluation of where are we at with this and is this worth it or not for you and for me? Yeah. I think that's a good point. So Mm -hmm. as a psychologist, I'm going to guess that you have done a lot of schooling as is the way. Yes. Yes. It is the way. (laughs) And we were chatting a little bit before we started recording about debt, student debt, right? And your experience. I'm really curious about for you your experience with student debt, being a psychologist and doing the amount of education you did, what did that look like for you coming out of school? Yes. I have had such an evolution with student debt. So I think I was like most people that I know, most of my colleagues. So when I started the program, my grad program, it just seemed so easy to take out student debt. You know, the program's pretty rigorous and it didn't make sense to try and work through it. Although some people Mm -hmm. do, I admire them for that. I, I just, for some reason decided not to. So I took out student loans. And if I could go back in time, I would not do that. I hate <laughs> student loans. I'm sure, sure most of our listeners yes. do too. Yeah. And it just it's it was presented to me. And I'm sure most people like that's just what you do. That's just it's so easy. It's like it, it makes no sense that you can just click two buttons and be in debt so deeply. 
Cause I mean, who reads those forms? I didn't read those forms in front. You know, there's like no screening procedure or anything. And it just, it just seems so easy. And so I went down that route and of course, over, you know, the six years or whatever that I was in school, just sort of snowballed. And I did my best to keep up with the interest, but it was harder than I thought it would be. My plan was to pay off the interest throughout the program when the loans were frozen. And so then my genius idea was, you know, by the time I graduate, then I'll just have the actual loan amount to pay off or maybe even a little bit less, but that just, you know, good intentions. It just didn't end up happening. And so then upon graduation, I just felt so like this weight of how am I going to get this handled? And obviously I was very well educated and I loved my fields and I wanted to work. It wasn't that, um, but I really felt like my options were limited as far as what I could do to survive with this mountain of debt I had oh at that gosh. point. And can I ask you, so that's actually, Aaron, can I yeah. ask you how much debt you had? Are you, are you open to talking about real numbers? It was in the six yeah. figure okay. range. Yep. So yep. it was a yep. lot. Yeah. Okay. Not, not like deep right. in the six figures, just like barely in the six <laughs> figures, but it was, yeah, it was significant yes. where I would get anxiety, yes. like checking on it, you know? Oh my gosh, yeah. Yes. It's just always, it's like a, it's like a little living thing that's always yes. with you. And so that's actually so many therapists just don't even look at it. Right. Like this is what I've noticed yeah. is it's, it almost feels so large and surmountable that it's just like this, the, the attitude I've heard from some therapists who've joined my course is like, it feels like it's just been with you forever. Like you're like, this is just mine. It is. I literally die. And that's the only way I'll be free of it for sure. Cause it's not a, an even understandable no. number. You know, it's like, I've never seen that much money in one space yes. in my life. And suddenly I owe this <laughs> amount of money. Like, how is this possible? And so it's so hard to even wrap your mind yeah. around that. Yes. It's very defeating. It's like, well, I guess I'm just going to be in debt until I'm 60 or, you know, yeah, if I die, it'll get paid off. That's a solution. You know, like it's, I mean, well, not, not like I'm no. suicidal. I just mean like, you know, lying on my deathbed at 90 You're or like, whatever, oh, then finally they'll go that's away. That's going to be gone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it just seems so overwhelmed. And obviously I knew the path was like, okay, just paid off like little by little. But so that's a huge reason why I actually went into private practice. I mean, I love, love working with clients. I really do. But I felt like that was the only way to make money quick enough without burning out. And I actually, most of my training was at nonprofits. And so I actually really enjoy working at nonprofits or community mental health clinics, but I just looking at the numbers, I was like, yeah, that's not doable for me. So um, that's how I ended up in private practice. And I really, really loved it. But over the last three to four years or so, my husband and I have found a way to actually pay off my student loans, which I still cannot (laughs) believe. So I'm sitting here without that weight on my shoulders. It is. And I, four years ago, I would have thought that was a miracle. And so because of that, now I have more opportunities to do other things. So it's not that I didn't love private practice. I may end up doing that again at some point, but I had this opportunity with triad and, you know, was able to actually not see clients for the first time because that debt wasn't there. And it just, it it feels so different. I have to That's a really interesting perspective that you had, that you recognize the income earning potential of private practice. Cause I think so many therapists, even therapists who are in it, haven't worked out their numbers in such a way yet that they feel like this is like, this is an easy way to make money. I think a lot of therapists feel like this is a hard way to make money. I'm curious for you, Erin, like what are some of the specific things in the way that you did in building your practice that made it like a real income generator for you and allowed you to accomplish this incredible thing and pay off the student debt? Yeah. Well, I agree. It's easy, but it's also so hard (laughs) because the clinical hours are hard, but on paper, it is easy to make money there. Yeah. So one thing was I actually realized that first year when I was in a group practice, 
as an independent contractor doing therapy, I realized I have to get out of this setting because I'm doing everything, but part of my money is going to someone else. And I wasn't sure about the paperwork and billing and all of that. So I'm glad I was there that year to learn those things. But I realized I was like, I could do this. Like I'm pretty organized. I can handle and take paperwork. I can schedule my own clients. I don't really need marketing anymore. Like I, you know, so I realized one thing was just actually being on my own, which was a little scary, especially newly licensed, but then all the money's mine, you know? So that was one thing. And I created a structure of support around me with consultations and old supervisors I would check in with. So I didn't feel super clinically alone, but that's where the money was, was being on your own. And then it, I went through this process. I'm sure you explain it in your podcast of trying to figure out what is my fee and what's actually sustainable. And so I used that kind of algorithm or whatever you want to call it <laughs> to realize, okay, I have to charge what to me seems like an uncomfortable amount yes, in order to not burn out and still make enough to pay off my loans little by little. And then I just worked my butt off. I had like really long days. And I think that honestly, that's part of the reason I now want to break from private practice. I think the weight of student loans made me work so hard. I don't want to say I was burnt out, but it was like headed that way. And if I didn't have that weight, I would have had a more reasonable client schedule. But yeah, I hustled. I hustled for three years to make that. Yeah, it sounds like you yeah. kind of did private practice like fast and furious. And now now you're yes. taking a break from it. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And so, you know, I'd look back and I'm like, man, if I didn't have student loans, maybe I would still be doing it. Maybe I would have done the same thing, but just slower and enjoyed it more. Um, and don't get me wrong. I, I like love my clients. I really do and miss them. But yeah, it's like, it's just, it's the way my path ended up. So it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, thinking about your journey through private practice, it's interesting because I feel like I also feel like I kind of went through private practice fast and furiously. But in my case, it's that I I didn't work too much, but I chose a really intense niche. <laughs> like I was kind of doing work when I first got into practice that other people were like, oh, you're too young for that. And I kind of, oh, I would have referred to you. Right? Those pieces then. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of dived in with two feet and like did this really intense, really gratifying work, but like, it's hard to sustain, right. When you're doing something so it intensely, is. whether it's the amount of sessions you're doing or the type of work that you're doing. And what I'm hearing from you is by being so diligent and focused and like working together with your, your husband to pay down this debt. Yeah. Now you have the choice to not have to do that. You're not stuck there. And now you're able to go do different work. Right. Yeah. I was surprised how much I was leaning towards not doing it once I had the option because I I really did enjoy it, but it's, you know, money shapes so much of our decisions because it's not an option. It's an, it's a must, it's a need, you know, you need to make that money. And so then with that removed, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I still need to make some money, but um, (laughs) with the weight of that removed, I was surprised how many other things I was interested in as well, that just weren't even an option before. And I've definitely seen many a therapist that I've met at like a trauma conference or whatever, who I'm like, Hmm, should you still be doing this work? You know, like, are you, is your heart really still in this? Are you, are you super burnt out and you have been for a decade, but I think people sometimes do feel trapped and they don't feel like they have the option to make a move somewhere else or try something different. And so they do continue practicing even when their heart's not in it. And I have to say, like, I don't think there's any way that doesn't impact, you know, the clients. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So obviously you're somebody who's very like diligent and focused around money with this like incredible thing that you accomplished paying off the student debt. I'm curious for people who are listening today who are like, that's great for Aaron, but holy shit, I have no, I would have no idea how to do that. I have no idea how to start. What would you suggest for them as a first step in starting to 
build a better relationship with money, build up their confidence or knowledge. So glad you asked that because that was me. That was me a few years ago or during grad school. So the number one thing, well, number two things that helped one was budgeting, which I know can make you want to run for the Hills, especially when you budget and you're like, yeah, I have negative money. This is not helpful, but just knowing down to the penny, where your money's going, what you're spending it on. Sometimes it feels like you get a raise when you do that because you realize, oh, I'm like frivolously spending this on, you know, DoorDash or something. And I don't need to, Amazon. Yeah, I know. <laughs> especially during the pandemic. It's just so embarrassing. Or, or maybe it's just nothing's labeled. And so you don't realize, oh, like I have this extra money. I'm just kind of sitting on and I could put it to use or put it towards my goals. So being disciplined and getting help if you need to about how to actually set up a budget monthly track, exactly what you're doing. This works for your business too. You would need a budget for your outgo and income with your business. And so doing it for your personal life is helpful too. So that was one thing just to help. It was hard at first because I was like, oh, wow, this is a big mess that I'm in. But at least then you know what you're dealing with and then you can figure out, okay, what's what's next? Like, how do I get out of this? And then the second thing that was super helpful was my husband and I followed the Dave Ramsey plan. He is pretty conservative, so it may not be everyone's cup of tea. Um, but if, you know, it, the principles that he teaches are super helpful, very practical. That was the number one thing that actually helped us get out of debt. And I didn't think that was possible, but here I am and it's possible. So, and I had to six figure debt. It was a lot. So he has a podcast called the Ramsey show, or I think his website's RamseySolutions.com, And he has step-by-step plan of how to get out of debt and how to get back on your feet. So that was helpful for us too. And then on the business end, there's this book I use to set up my practice. Mm. And that's where I got the idea of how to set the fee. Mm. And I'm sure some of that's repetitive from your listeners, but it was called the paper office for the digital age. I've never heard of that book. Yeah. It was actually recommended to me by a lawyer. I consulted with a lawyer just for like 10 minutes of how do I know my paperwork is right for Mm -hmm. my practice, but they did have interesting things in there about fee setting and managing your time. And so it just helped me sort of create an identity as a private practice therapist when I was newly licensed and didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) Yeah. And like, that is a, you know, I want to give you props for that because I think it's so easy to go in and just kind of flail around a little. (laughs) And it sounds like what I'm, what I'm getting from you is you, you sound like a, you know, you're diligent, right? Like you've kind of, you did your due diligence, right? You talked to a lawyer. I overthink (laughs) everything before I do it. (laughs) That's a nice way of you saying that. Yeah. (laughs) Overthinking can, you know, serve a purpose. Um, and it sounds yes. like you've really used your, your overthinking for good, right? Like it's, it's helped yes. you accomplish a lot. You've harnessed that. Yeah, I am proud. I am proud. I can look back. I had very mixed feelings about deciding to end the practice, but I, one of them, I was like, yeah, I'm really proud. Like I pulled that off early in licensure when a lot of people don't, and it was successful. And so I am very proud of how all that turned out, but it came from a lot of not knowing and mistakes and <laughs> just figuring out what I needed, which I think is what we're that, all trying yeah, to do. I think that that's a very good summary of what we're all trying to do. So Aaron, yeah. thank you so much for joining me today. This has been so lovely talking to you. Thank you. Um, and yeah. I'm curious if people want to learn more about Triad, what are some of the resources that Triad has that could be helpful for our listeners? 
Yeah. Triad actually just launched. It's like our version of Facebook and LinkedIn for psychologists, mental health professionals. And that's called hellotriad.com and triad is spelled T-R-I-A-D. So if you want to get connected with other professionals or see what CEUs we're offering, sometimes people post blogs on there or job opportunities on there. So that's kind of the hub of communication for triad, but obviously you can learn a lot more about what triad is from there as well. And we do actually have a discount code. If we can use our discount code, oh, your, wow. yeah. okay. uh, so, uh, people can use the, the discount code. I'll, I'll share the code in the show notes. So you can also get a discount on CEUs. I believe it's 10%, but take a look in the, in the show notes to see that. That's great. Yeah. We have exam prep materials, CEUs, and then just kind of a community that you can connect with. Great. Well, thank you so much, Erin. It was great talking to you today. It was so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Erin's story about paying off her student debt is so inspiring. And I know I've said the word inspiring many times in this podcast, but it's rare that you meet someone Erin's age. She's probably in her thirties. I'm guessing Erin, if I'm wrong, I'm sorry, who has paid down student debt. (laughs) It's incredible. And so I hope that for those of you listening who feel maybe disempowered or overwhelmed by your debt, that Erin's story lets you know that it is possible to pay off the debt. And even if you don't want to do it like she did, you know, which in a certain way did have that cost of kind of doing private practice so hard that now she's taking a little break from it. It did open up this huge financial freedom for her that now she can do whatever kind of work she wants. And even if you take some of the tips that she suggested around budgeting and looking at different methods for paying down debt, Dave Ramsey being an example, then you can get that much closer to not having that debt hanging over your head and be able to make decisions about money that are rooted in what really makes sense for your life right now and what kind of work you're drawn to, not kind of getting trapped somewhere because you have the stress of paying down debt. If you want more free money content from us, you can follow me on Instagram at moneynutsandbolts. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please jump over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review and tell your friends about it. That is the way to get this information to the right ears and get therapists feeling more confident about money and less alone. Thank you so much for listening today.